Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode, Mike and Andrew sit down with Dr. Kurt Campbell, President and CEO of the Asia Group. Dr. Campbell is also the co-founder of the Center for New American Security and former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. In part one of the two-part discussion, Mike, Kurt, and Andrew give an inside look at the establishment of the Anaya Initiative, which is a post-Cold War drive to restructure the U.S.-Japan alliance for the present era. They also grade the Trump and Obama administration's records against combating strategic drift. Are there bright spots in contemporary U.S. grand strategy in Asia, or have intra-administration divisions prevented the execution of successful grand strategy? So, Kurt, welcome to the podcast. We've got you and Mike Green here. This is, you know, a veritable, you know, grand strategist master session we've got going here. How did you first get into strategy, especially when it comes to Asia? Thanks, Andrew. And it's great to be with uh, both you and Mike. Well, I studied political science and international relations in graduate school, although my geographic focus was more on Europe, the former Soviet Union. And I also looked at the role of ideology in the third world, largely in Africa. So I was a latecomer relatively to Asia. I was uh, actually a White House fellow for a couple of years in the Treasury Department and was heading back uh, to teach at Harvard. And uh, a colleague there who was serving at the Defense Department, his name was Joe Nye, uh, out of the blue, literally, I was packing up boxes to move back to Cambridge. I was in Washington, D.C., said, would you like to come over to the Pentagon and help me with Asia policy? And I hadn't really, I'd, I'd been in the Navy and I'd had a couple of weeks uh, on duty in Yokosuka, but I had not had really any experience working on Asia. And, had, and I said yes. And went over and you know i i have to say from that moment which was in 1995 i've been obsessed and focused and interested by asia ever since and so i i think of myself as a relative newcomer but it's now 25 years uh but from that moment i think asia has animated almost everything i've thought about and done all right, so I had to bring Mike in in a minute, but we're talking about Joe Nye. So we're talking yeah. about the Joe Nye. Yeah. And this is before the Joe Nye becomes professor at Harvard himself. No, he was, he was a longtime professor at Harvard, and he served as the assistant secretary for international security affairs for about two years in the Pentagon. Right. So did you had you known him at Harvard? Oh, yes. He was pretty so much had, my mentor. He yeah. was your mentor at mm -hmm. Harvard, and then he had convinced you to go to the Pentagon. Yeah, he, okay. he had moved down there. Uh, I think he was looking to fill out his team. I think he got uniform advice not to hire me, uh, but I, I why, went why over. Why was that? Just you know, I, I had no Asia experience. Sharp elbows yeah, at, at Harvard yeah. was that I, was what going on? I, you know, I was a little younger, probably a little too ambitious, a little bit on the make, you know. And you know, it's hard to do that job without very much experience. And so, w one of the things that happened almost immediately was that you know he was like, "We've got to bring on board and work with people who are the best." And we were for fortunate to work with people like Ezra Vogel, but the person who was the most helpful, the most strategic, and the person who was most gracious in a bipartisan way was Mike Green, who I, I look back, I hadn't really worked with him or known him, but I traveled with him on, on a number of occasions uh, to Japan and other parts of Asia. I still sometimes th can reflect and remember 
actual phrases that Mike used to explain certain dynamics of Asia. They were that important, and I still remember them 25 years later. So, Mike, how did you all first connect? Um, I remember it really well. This sounds like a dating game session, but I remember it really well. Joe, I These was- These were good dates, though. Well, Kurt's a great date, but uh, <laughs> I had, um, I'd lived in Japan for five years, and had finished just finished my PhD, and I wrote on the U.S.-Japan alliance, which was, you know, in the early 90s, kind of thought of as an out-of-date Cold Warrior thing to write about. Um, but the Pentagon in those days was growing really worried about the state of our alliances. Um, we, we, they were drifting, as Yoichi Funabashi, the famous Japanese journalist, put it. So the Pentagon, actually, the action started at the National Intelligence Council, where Joe was the chief. This is the Clinton administration, and and Ezra Vogel, the storied Harvard, uh, Japan, and China expert, was head of Asia, national intelligence officer, and they knew they were going over to the Pentagon. So at the same time, they were talking to Kurt. They they grabbed me out of obscurity. I was teaching at SAIS as I finished my PhD uh, to help out, and it was pretty listless at the Pentagon. The State Department had been pretty much ordered to focus on economic issues. So the old... So listless in terms of Asia policy or yeah, listless? Yeah, Asia policy. And the best way to think about it is, you know, this is this period immediate left after the Cold War. Right. A lot of questions about American purpose and uh, a sense that at the in the early period of the Clinton administration, the primary focus, remember the watchword was, it's the economy, stupid. So sure. a lot of focus on domestic politics, a lot of focus on unfair trade interactions largely with Japan, and a sense that to the extent there was a strategic focus, it was mostly on three issues in Europe, the horrible war in Bosnia, NATO expansion, and the continuing dissolution of the former Soviet Union. So I got pulled into the Pentagon as a basically a consultant, and Kurt's predecessor uh, tried to get me fired because I was uh, making noise about how uh, our alliances were uh, drifting because of everything Kurt's describing, the focus on Europe. We had big trade wars with Japan. Kurt's predecessor wanted me out, and, um, and instead Joe and I brought in Kurt as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, the top Asia guy. So Kurt and I first met in Joe and I's office when Kurt was getting briefed up for his new job. And I remember it really well because um, I started saying what I had been saying about how the alliance needed... Um, some serious shoring up, uh, and it, Kurt just grabbed it and ran with it. Um, and it was very clear why Joe had hired him, because he was going to get stuff done. And it was an interesting time, Kurt, because it was really just, you know, Bill Perry, who I guess at that point was Secretary, uh, you and Joe. But the rest of the Clinton administration thought this alliance stuff was old think, right? You should tell us a bit about what it was like yeah. trying to basically from within the Pentagon, get an entire administration focused on shoring up our alliances uh, after the Cold War, when a lot of people thought we didn't need them anymore in Asia. Yeah. Look, it's nice for Mike to, to give credit to other people, but the truth is there was a cadre of people. I would say Mike was pretty much the leader who were deeply enmeshed in academia, uh, in Republican politics, uh, who understood Capitol Hill that helped carry the message. And so when I look back at this period, it feels a little bit like a mirage. Um, we were all younger. Um, there was a tremendous sense of shared purpose. Bipartisanship, too. Yeah, bipartisanship. It was not as nasty. I was very much struck. I, I think the interesting thing about government, and this is something that people don't really understand, is that a lot of times 
where you can make the most progress is not on the issue of the day because the dominant issue of the day generally attracts a lot of attention, which often leads to fighting and infighting. And so sometimes it's good to take an issue that's perhaps a se- of second tier importance, or at least of, it is thought of as second tier importance. I think in retrospect, it now uh, looks quite important and really, you know, set about trying to focus on it. Um, I, I would say that we had a very clear agenda of what we wanted to accomplish with respect to a set of, you know, kind of strategic purposes that the alliance would focus on and to, and it had important domestic undercurrents in Japan. But almost immediately when we started this process, um, in 1995, there was a tragic, horrific rape of a young Japanese girl in Okinawa. And that issue, uh, that question of status of American forces in Okinawa, basically became intertwined with this larger effort. And it was impossible. So at the same time that we were trying to sort of rebuild and um, regird the alliance with a new set of purposes, we also had to shore up enormous domestic uh, concerns in Japan about the behavior and the activities. You had major damage control. Yeah, and and you know, you, and then you start to realize that you know there are a lot of things that are hard to do in foreign policy. It's very hard to strike a nuclear deal with Iran, but one of the hardest things to do in uh, government is to manage um, the the forward deployment of forces in another democratic country. And so we're a democracy, Japan is a democracy, as is Korea. Putting forces in another country in which it's subject to debate and discussion is one of the most difficult things that you can do. And so I was always struck, I I remember a conversation I had with Mike, we were talking about strategic dialogue. And, And for most people, when they think of Asia, they think of the sort of the slightly outturned chairs of the strategic dialogues of China, where Kissinger and Mao Zedong or Zhou Enlai were sort of reflecting on the state of the world and you know the French Revolution. It's it's very sexy, heady stuff. Um, but for those of us who were more focused on the alliances, we ended up talking about. Um, you know, where the palm trees are in Okinawa, whether they're in the flight path and stuff. So it's, it's profoundly unsexy, but unbelievably important. Those details are what give purpose and, uh, essential, you know, buy-in to alliance politics. And so incredibly hard because of the sensitivities of our yeah. engagement in those countries, correct? Yeah. And because of the burden it places on the US military. So, you know, when Kurt was in that job, on the one hand, he had, uh, Okinawans locally who resented some of the impositions, the noise, and on the other side, the U.S. Marine Corps, which had to operate and maintain a high level of readiness. And that, in that space, is um, you don't think of it as grand strategy, but in that space is how you maintain forward presence uh, overseas, which is at the core of U.S. grand strategy. George Schultz, who I think is my favorite Secretary of State on Asia in the 20th century, maybe Kurtz too, yeah. said that really for him, foreign policy was more like gardening. You tend the weeds. You don't see big results every day. You put in the time, and you and you create something you know lasting and important with those small efforts. Not the big you know Nixon goes to China meets with Mao diplomacy, but the small yeah. tactical day by day pruning and weeding and planting and watering to build a more stable order because of your presence. Mike's got a great section 
around. Uh, I agree with him that I think Schultz um, was was not only the best uh, foreign secretary secretary of state for Asia, but but I don't think he's gotten the credit he deserves. But the section in his book uh, that describes how he thought about Asia was, I think, incredibly powerful. Mike's book on grand strategy, grand strategy yeah. in yeah. Asia, the be, the best book on grand grand strategy in Asia, that's absolutely yet, yet written. Actually, I have an autographed copy sitting yeah. in my family room yeah. right now. Those are hard to come by. I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> Can't find the book so, anywhere. It's next to a book called Hard Power by yeah. Kurt yeah. Campbell. Yeah, there's, there's another there's another rare run. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting, and it's hard to explain, Andrew, but for the Japanese, these issues of Okinawa and repurposing the alliance were absolutely front and center. And so they'd come to the United States for meetings, often in the White House and the White House and other folks wouldn't even know anything about the specifics of Fatenma base. That's a base in Okinawa and, you know, issues about relocations. So we had to make sure that no one said anything that veered from the script. And so, you know, I, um, it was an incredibly interesting and challenging time uh, for me. I remember the, uh, we had a state dinner, you know, and, and Mike was nice. A, a deputy assistant secretary is a lowly position, but, but, you know, you make the most of it. And when you're, when you deploy, when you're out there, it's, it's a, you know, you can feel pretty good about the work you're doing. And I remember I was invited to the state dinner. It was the only time I was invited. And it, it was a Japan state dinner and the Japanese were kind of huddled by themselves in the corner because they didn't know anyone in, at the senior levels uh, in the Clinton administration. Then I came in and they thought, oh, Campbell's here. And I'm like, <laughs> like you guys got to get out more. <laughs> right, right. I remember, Kurt, when you came back into government uh, in the Obama administration as the assistant secretary for East Asia Pacific at the State Department. When word came out you were going to get that job, I happened to be in Jakarta and I was having dinner with a group of uh, diplomats from our embassy, senior foreign service officers, one of who was going to go back into the bureau to work for you. And, and I remember she said, you know Kurt Campbell? I said, yeah. And she said, he's a strategy guy, isn't he? And it was not meant as a compliment. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but moving from the Pentagon to the State yeah. Department must have been interesting. I think in the Nye Initiative, as it was called years in the mid-90s, what really motivated Joe was maintaining the instruments of American power yeah. in a time of uncertainty. But by the time you went back in for... President Obama and to work for Secretary Clinton, there was really a deteriorating balance of powers. A much more, yeah. uh, the external challenges were a lot more serious. Um, but you know, within the State Department, a lot of Foreign Service officers see their job as maintaining. And Kurt was seen as a guy who wanted to go out and do things. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, w I wonder if it goes further than that. It's remarkable how much time our military organizations and uh, our policy apparatus at the Pentagon think about strategy. And how little, frankly, is thought really strategically uh, at the State Department. And I think part of it is resources. Part of it is this sort of spirit of maintenance that Mike describes. Which I should hasten to add is not a bad thing. Yeah. Relationships are essential tools in foreign policy, but it, it, it's time intensive. And, and that's part of why the, the, the culture there is so focused on it. I agree with that. But I also think it goes beyond that. I, I was one of the, those people who I'd served in a lot of other capacities at the Treasury, at the White House, and, and at the Defense Department. I, I uh, harbored almost all those negative views of the State Department. I never thought in a million years I would work there. When I went uh, toe to toe with them bureaucratically, always wanted to crush them. Right? 
And then once I arrived and started working there, I realized how fundamentally I had misunderstood the institution. And frankly, there's probably nowhere else I would work. I feel that strongly about Is that. The right? place. Yeah. But I would also say that they are a group of people that have traditionally not been led as well as they should be. They're incredibly loyal, incredibly hardworking. You know, Andrew, you cannot believe how much they labor without very much support. Like if you're a military person, you can't walk down the street without someone saying thank you for your service. Right. There was hardly a week that went by that I didn't get a, a letter from someone saying, you know what, this is going to shock you. But I had someone help me enormously get this visa or help me. Like they had so, such low expectations for my team. But in the end, they always, you know, outperformed. I found that almost all these guys, uh, men and women, rose to the challenge and when given the opportunity to do things uh, there was there were a group of officers that were sensational but i will say i think there were certain aspects of the way i ran the bureau that were probably less popular i i don't i've never really very much liked hierarchical organizations i like flat organizations i would often encourage young officers to to talk um, you would think that there would be more hierarchy in the Pentagon than in the State Department, but that would not be the case. The State Department is extremely hierarchical. And so if you encourage young people to talk, that, that gets people maybe a little bit unhappy with mm-hmm. you as you go forward. But I just, I thought, you know, at the time we were at trying to figure out how to, you know, reposition the United States in Asia. And I, I it, what Mike says is absolutely true that, you know, there, one of the big debates right now is how are we doing? I mean, yeah. just generally speaking. Yeah. And and the differences in perspective on that question are really dramatic. I'm struck when I sit down with friends in the Trump administration, there is a general sense that that the United States is surging and and in a very good position in Asia. I, I would beg to differ. I think many of our traditional advantages have eroded and that our position in Asia is under a degree of stress uh, that we have not faced um, perhaps ever. Well, let's talk about that. Why do you think that? Well, I, for a variety of reasons. Um, you, you know, first of all, we've been dramatically preoccupied on a different set of regional challenges in the Middle East and South Asia. And I think it is undeniable. I, I think we gave it our all, but as we look back on it, we'd have to recognize that in terms of our investments, our, our return has been much, much less than we've hoped. You're talking about our return in the Middle East. Yeah. I, I also think that, you know, if you think about the, the global system that we helped create, in the post-Cold War world. It's an operating system that, you know, freedom of navigation, alliances, you know, sanctity of contracts, it's all kind of interestingly and importantly woven together and integrated. No region has benefited more from those interactions than Asia. Um, but right now, you'd have to say that that system that has been so very good to us is being undermined subtly and directly by two nations. The, the, the first is China. Uh, China is seeking to take elements of that and kind of reshape it for its own purpose, but clearly sees itself as a dominant power. And it's natural for dominant rising powers to want to have their own institutions, their own role, not just join. And so they are seeking to amend and adjust and in some cases undermine elements of this system that 
that has been, frankly, very good to China and very good to Asia more generally. The other country that's going after this consensus is a bit of a surprise, and that's the United States. So we are undermining the, you know, on a daily basis, um, support for trade, uh, the role of human rights and democracy, uh, the sense that allies are at the core of our uh, foundational approach to Asia, and you know a a general uh, care in terms of how we've engaged um, authoritarian leaders, and so across the board, many in Asia are extraordinarily wary and some kind some cases disoriented by our approach and so that has hurt us in asia undeniably and then last is i just i think you know we have over focused on the military dimensions of competition in asia when in fact the real issues andrew and as mike knows well are really about comprehensive national power they're about trade technology investment you know uh ideas and in in that in those respects the united states uh has not been as effective of late kurt let me put myself in the opposition of defending the trump administration a little bit because uh, I actually I basically agree with uh, a lot of what you said, especially, frankly, the president's own positions on human rights, on allies, on trade, on institutions are damaging. Even our, cl- especially our closest friends are privately quite alarmed. As we saw with the British ambassadors, leaked cable, very alarmed. And yeah. that sometimes comes out. On the other hand, you know, when you were working with Secretary Clinton to announce the pivot to Asia, later called the rebalance, the premise of that, I think, was balance of power. We needed to get back in the game to stop China doing what you described. But there were a lot of people in the Obama administration who did not like that. I don't think Secretary Kerry liked it. I'm not sure Susan Rice liked it. There was a lot of ambivalence or uncertainty within the administration about whether a balance of power strategy would work. And the one thing you can say, I think, about this administration, at least below the level of the president himself, is there's a pretty unified view. Uh, across the administration that we are now in a real contest with China and that the the balance of power strategies have to make sense. The president is undermining a lot of that. Um, They're not staffing themselves well. There's an over-reliance on military. There's a real lack of investment in institutions, both American institutions and international. But I feel like they kind of got the premise right. Uh, Is that fair or unfair? What do you think? It's a good approach, Mike. But the, the only thing I would say is that, you know, you often hear people say, well, look, you know, ignore what happens at the top. Look at what's sort of the accompanying music in like the, the Wizard of Oz. Ignore the yeah, man behind I, the curtain. I just I, I tend to worry about that, though, over time, Mike, because fundamentally running a government in which on a moment's notice, the leader, the president through a tweet or a comment can basically set back. You know, you know, years, months of of careful planning, and I I think ultimately there has to be a unity of purpose in government between the leader and the government as a whole, and I think generally speaking that's absent and it's missing. So I would accept and argue that what you're saying is largely true, and I think the issue of American position in Asia, it's not like this suddenly started degrading. Yeah. Um, uh, during the Trump administration, I would even take issue with my own approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I think 
it was long on sort of public relations diplomacy, but short on resources. I don't think there was a dramatic shift really fundamentally in the way the U.S. government approached uh, the challenges and opportunities in Asia. I would say I think we were still very much focused on the Middle East and South Asia. And a lot of times it felt more rhetorical than than, than real. I, I, I think the question of, you know, what's the fundamental nature of the relationship between the United States and China? I, I would say that neither administrations have got it yeah. quite right. I think we were probably too much fundamentally on the side, let's work together as partners. And I think the President Trump and his team are too much. We're we are only strategic competitors. When in reality, it's going to be like Goldilocks, somewhere in the middle. You know, our destiny is a form of enduring strategic competition. But at the same time, I think it is undeniable that there are areas where the United States and China have to work together, and we will. As Winston Churchill was supposed to have settled, and he didn't actually, you can count on the Americans to do all the wrong choices before they eventually get to the right choice. Yeah. Too hot, too cold. Maybe allies will push us there. If, you know, Donald Trump's not going to change. There's a general consensus about that in Washington and around the world. But given that limitation, what one thing would you get Secretary Pompeo or John Bolton or Pence or others to do in Asia to at least shore up our position, given yeah, what you just good described? Position. I, I had a chance to talk to the secretary about this. I think this gets back to this question of like focusing on the second tier issues and really taking them on board. It's clear the president's going to focus on China and North Korea. That's what he's decided is are going to be his issues. I, I find both of those you know, to be deeply unpredictable. And, you know, it's hard to tell, is Huawei in? Are they out? You know, just we're depending on the the whims of President Trump after he's had, you know, complex interactions with President Xi. I, I would be much more inclined for a Secretary of State to really focus on an allied initiative. Mm -hmm. India, Australia, a couple of countries in Southeast Asia, perhaps Vietnam and Japan. And I would be focused You're on talking about a collective. No, but I, I think there is or, or bilateral, bilateral, but trending a little. You, you have mm -hmm. to be careful how you talk about it, Mike, because if you talk about a collective, that scares people off. But I do think there's some commonalities and some linkages that you could take advantage of. I would also say I, I think there are a couple of things that really lend themselves to uh, an American Secretary of State. The fact that Japan and South Korea can barely sit in a room together is a tragedy. And we should be forcing those two countries to get along better. Yeah. And we could do it. Yeah. And Pompeo would be good at that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.